I was telling Pastor Chad the other day, I really appreciated uh, what John Piper said at the end there about that, that illustration in the Minneapolis Public School. Sometimes I think that we feel like we've got to change the whole state of Michigan. You know, we've got to change our nation. And, and I, I love this phrase, that paralyzes us. We become overwhelmed with us. When what we really need to do is be faithful where we are to speak the truth where we are. I think those are some very wise words. And if all of us are doing it, in the various places that God has placed us, in different jobs, different realms, some of you come from different communities, as we work together speaking the truth, being faithful, we will have more influence than maybe we think we would. And I want you to think about that tonight as we look at the importance, again, of the Word of God, as the importance of the Bible, which is foundational in all of this. So if you have a Bible with you tonight, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 through 21. If you've been with us on Sunday nights two weeks ago, last week we had... Uh, Katie Sawyer with us, New Tribes Missionary to Paraguay. But two weeks ago, we looked at part one of the truth of Jesus coming. We looked at verses 16 through 18. Tonight, we're looking at part two, verses 19 through 21. I want to try to tie these two together for you tonight. And, and again, the, the, the overriding theme tonight is that the Bible is... The word of God. In verses 19 through 21, Peter writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, our first point tonight is the second coming. In part one of this message, we saw that Peter returned to the subject of our salvation and seeks to verify the truth which he and the other apostles proclaim. Here's where we've been in 2 Peter. We're in 1 Peter in the morning, 2 Peter in the evening. In the first part of chapter 1, Peter proclaims the glory of the gospel, the greatness of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation, the greatness of our salvation and the wondrous assurance that we have of our salvation. Then in verses 12 through 15, he digresses and talks about, and we looked at this three weeks ago, that he is going to continue to repeat the essential truths until the day he dies. We talked about the importance of repetition. We talked about the importance of even to those who are well-established in the truth that you learn the same truths and you learn them over and over and over again because of our bent, our tendency to forget even the most basic things. And then in verse 16, he wants to verify. He wants to, to say to his readers, I'm going to verify for you. 
the truth of the greatness of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation. I want to verify this truth for you. And he does it in a very fascinating and interesting way. He focuses on the second coming of Christ. He doesn't go into this long lecture about here's what you need to believe. He focuses on the second coming of Christ. I want you to think about this with me tonight. He focuses on the second coming of Christ as a way of verifying the truth and accuracy of the gospel. And he gives two evidences in verses 16 through 21. The first is his own eyewitness account of Jesus. And the second is the authority of Scripture, which we'll look at tonight. So the first that we looked at two weeks ago is their, their eyewitness account of Christ. And so he is saying in, these, in the first part of this, he says, I, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may think, why does he use the second coming of Christ to verify the gospel? And here's why. I shared this with you two weeks ago, and I think it's extremely important. If the truth about the second coming of Christ cannot be believed, then neither can the gospel message. Okay? If we can't believe in the second coming of Christ, then we can't believe the gospel. Are you with me on that? In other words, what Peter is saying, you can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to believe. If you don't believe Jesus is coming, don't tell me that you believe the gospel message. And that's true for all parts of the Bible. If someone says, I'm not really sure that Job ever existed, then don't tell me you believe the gospel. If you're not sure that Jonah was actually really swallowed by a great fish, then don't tell me you believe the gospel. Folks, you either take all of it or you take none of it. That's the thought here. You take it all or you take none of it. And so he says, I'm going to verify for you the truth of the gospel, the greatness of your salvation and the assurance of your salvation by using the second coming of Christ. And so he says in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. The false teachers of this day were in abundance and they developed carefully crafted lies to draw people away and to make money off from them. False teachers of the day like to manipulate people and to make money off from people with their false teachings. And some of these false teachers were even saying that this new Christian faith that these people were proclaiming was just another false teaching. That's just another teaching. Man, we've heard dozens of teachings from different philosophers, from different philosophies, and this is just another one of those teachings. And so this is what Peter is saying. And so Peter says that we have taught you we have taught you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in verse 16 at the very end, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we looked at a couple of weeks ago something that is fascinating. Maybe you knew this before, but I'm guessing that most of us had never really thought of it in this way before. 
Peter, James, and John were part of an event that foreshadows the second coming of Christ. That is a foretaste of the return of Christ. And that is when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus glorified before their very eyes. They saw Moses and Elijah show up on that mountain. We don't know which mountain it was. And there was Jesus in all of his glory. Now, when we read that in the Gospels, we say that's an amazing event. And oh, it would have been great to be a part of that. But what Peter tells us, and remember the Bible is the greatest commentary on the Bible. What Peter is telling us is that transfiguration was not just a great event. It was actually a foretaste, a foretelling of the second coming of Christ. They got this little taste of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns in all of his glory. And so in verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves, Peter says, referring to him and James and John, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard God speak. We saw Jesus glorified. We are the ones telling you about the gospel. We were our eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his majestic glory. And that brings us to part two tonight. The truth about Jesus coming part two. When Peter, James, and John excuse me, what Peter, James, and John experienced on the mountain was extremely important. But there is something even more important, and that is Scripture itself. That's part two. What they experienced on the mountain was amazing, but there's something even more important than what they experienced on the mountain, and that is Scripture itself. In verse 19, it says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here's the thought tonight. What they experienced in the transfiguration. What they experienced in the transfiguration was unique to those three men and will never be repeated again. As wonderful as it was, and as important as it is, and Peter uses his eyewitness account as a way of verifying the gospel. But as amazing as it was, it was a unique one-time experience that those three men alone experienced. We have something even more important. We have the eternal, lasting Word of God. Folks, we have the Bible. We have the Bible as an ongoing verification and testimony of the truth and veracity of the gospel message. Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Throughout biblical history, God himself has repeatedly emphasized that his inspired word is inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient, an all-sufficient source 
of truth which does not require human confirmation. Okay, throughout the biblical history, God has repeatedly emphasized the importance of his word. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. He doesn't need your confirmation. He doesn't need my confirmation. He doesn't need the confirmation of intellectuals. It is his word, and his word stands authoritatively on its own. Now, the expression, the prophetic word in Peter's day, embraced the entire Old Testament. So Peter most likely here is referring to the Old Testament. But what he is talking about when he says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed extends beyond those passages about prophecy to include the entire inspired word. So when he talks about prophecy, and I'll mention this again in a few minutes, when he talks about prophecy, he's not just talking about predictions of the future, but he's talking about the whole word of God. And in this case, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. Now, we can extend that today, looking back. While Peter may primarily have been referring to the Old Testament, Scripture is Scripture. And what is true of the Old Testament is also true of the New Testament. So we can confidently say today that what we have is the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, revealed to us by God himself. And Peter says, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And we think of that classic passage in Psalm 119. We just sang about it tonight. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I would guess tonight that for many of you here tonight, that was one of the first verses, maybe after John 3.16, that you ever memorized. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Peter says, and this is what Peter, excuse me, and he most likely is basing it on Psalm 119. You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You better pay attention to the Bible. You better pay attention to the word of God because it is a lamp shining in a dark place. And here's the thought. Because of the fall of man, because we live in a sin-infested world, we live in a world of spiritual darkness. Folks, you look all around us. We live in a world of decay. Buildings are decaying. Cars are decaying. The earth itself is decaying. People all around us are dying all the time. But into that darkness is the word of God. And it shines as a great lamp. It is the light that shines right in the midst of the darkness. Giving us truth about God. Giving us truth about salvation. Giving us truth about eternal life. If we did not have the word of God. If we did not have the Bible we would be wandering right now 
in a desolate place in darkness. We would simply be wandering around in the darkness of human thoughts. And he says, you will do well to pay attention as to a light, or excuse me, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now this thought here is a direct reference once again to the second coming of Christ. We have the prophetic word. We have the word of God more fully confirmed, even more important than the eyewitness account of Peter, James, and John. You will do well to pay attention to that prophetic word, to the Old and New Testaments, as a lamp shining in a dark place, the only light you really have, the only truth that you really know. And you keep, you keep emphasizing that light, that truth, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day is referring to the day when Jesus returns in all of his blazing glory to set up his millennial kingdom here upon the earth. And until that day dawns, the morning star here is an interesting phrase. It technically refers to the planet of Venus, which actually rises prior to the morning sun. But throughout the New Testament, the morning star spiritually is a reference to Jesus himself. He is often referred to as the morning star. And one day, Jesus is going to come back and you are going to realize the fullness of your salvation. You will be more alive in him than you have ever experienced in your entire existence. You will go home to be with him. You will be removed from the very presence and power of sin. And he says, until the day dawns, until the day that Jesus comes, And until the day the morning star rises in your hearts, until that day, he is basically saying, be faithful to the word of God. Be faithful to the word of God. Well, our second point tonight is inspiration. Verses 20 and 21 form one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament for the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. If you have studied a course in basic theology, if you have had the privilege of going to Bible school, you will know that there are two passages in the New Testament that stand out above all others. They're not the only ones, but they stand out on the inspiration and authority of Scripture, and they are First, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and Second Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, which we'll look at in just a little bit. Those are the two key passages. So when you think of the inspiration of Scripture, when you think of God breathing out the word, the words of Scripture, you think of those two passages. And notice in verse 20 what Peter says, knowing this first of all. And when you see a phrase like that in the Bible, it means this is really important. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 
15, where the Apostle Paul says, For I delivered unto you as of first importance. For I delivered unto you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And he says, I delivered this unto you as of first importance. You know what's more important than anything else? The gospel. You know what Peter is saying? He is saying, I want you to know this first of all. What I'm about to tell you is extremely important. And it says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced, ever, by the will of man, but men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word prophecy here, as Peter uses it here, once again, I want to emphasize, refers not only to predictive prophecy, but also to the proclamation of truth itself. And sometimes we get confused with that. If I were to say to you, I'm going to do a message on prophecy, almost all of you would think that I'm going to talk about future events, predictive prophecy about the future, and that is one way that the Bible uses the word prophecy, but it is not the only way. Prophecy is also used simply to refer to the proclamation of truth itself. Think of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, etc. They didn't just tell about the future. In fact, if you read through their books, the majority of the time, they are simply proclaiming the truth of God. They are saying to the nation of Israel, whether it was the whole nation or the divided kingdom of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they are saying, here's what God says. They were God's spokesmen. Here's the truth of God. Here's the truth of God. You better listen up or you will face the consequences. That actually is the more prevalent use of the word prophecy in the Bible. And what Peter is saying is that no part of prophecy, no part of the Bible came into being or originated from a man's human thoughts. You need to know that tonight. No part of the Bible originated from a man's human thoughts. Until you die, people are going to tell you that the Bible is nothing but the writings of men. That has been said for centuries and it will continue to be said until the Lord returns, until the day we die or until the day we die, that the Bible is nothing but the writings of men. Folks, that is completely false. And this passage says that is absolutely, absolutely not true. Now, this is very important in the context. The false prophets of this time spoke of their own philosophies and their own ideas. And what Peter is saying is Scripture is different. The words we are giving to you come not 
from our minds, not from our human thoughts. They are the very words of God himself. And so it is important to hear here to understand that Peter is talking about the origin of Scripture. He says this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. We need to know that tonight. No word of God, no prophecy, no part of the Bible was ever produced by the will of man. What human beings might think or want has absolutely nothing to do with divine truth. Here is maybe the most important phrase in this text. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's where the Bible comes from. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is a picture, a famous word picture here, of the wind filling the sail of a sailboat and carrying it along the water. So I want you to imagine that there is this sailboat and it is just sitting on the calm water. And then all of a sudden a great wind comes up and it fills the sail of the sailboat and the sailboat starts to move. That is exactly the thought here. The writers of Scripture allowed the Holy Spirit to fill their spiritual sails and allowed the Holy Spirit to fill them with his powerful breath of revelation as they penned exactly what God wanted written. So the thought here is, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit so filled these men that they ended up writing exactly what God wanted written. What I want to do as we close tonight is I want to share with you a classic definition on the inspiration of Scripture. But before I do that, let's go to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. This is the second key passage. Remember again tonight, two key passages in the New Testament. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. This is what Paul writes. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The ESV that we use as a church has an excellent translation here. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for equipping you for every good work that God would ever want you to do. Now let me share with you a classic definition. This comes from the Moody Handbook of Theology. There are different ways this could be said in different books, but I have found this one of the most accurate and easy to understand definitions of what we mean by inspiration. So when I talk to you, when you hear a preacher stand up and say, hey, 
we believe in the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. What does he mean by that? What exactly does he mean? Let me read this definition. It'll be on the screen for you, starting, Lynn, it's the one with we believe. And this is what it says. We believe that all scripture, the whole Bible, Old Testament 39 books and New Testament 27 books, is God-breathed. The words of Scripture are just as much God's words as if he had verbally spoken them to us. The Holy Spirit guided the writers of each book using their individual styles and personalities so that what they wrote is exactly what God wanted written. Divine inspiration extends equally and fully to the Old and New Testaments, to every book of both testaments, to every part of each book, and to every word as recorded in the original manuscripts. Now, I want you to think about this. When you pick up your Bible and you read it, you ought to handle it with great care because God is speaking to you. When you read the Bible, it's the same Folks, it is the same as if God verbally spoke to you. I've shared this with you before. Sometimes people say, oh, wouldn't it be great if I heard the voice of God? Oh, you hear it every day when you read your Bible. You want to hear the voice of God? You want something supernatural? You pick up your Bible and read it. That's what we mean by divine inspiration. It's God himself speaking to you. Now, Let us understand this about divine inspiration because sometimes there is misunderstanding here. When God gave the word of God, it wasn't by divine dictation. And this is a misunderstanding. Sometimes people think that God was up there going, okay, Luke, here's what I want you to write. Write it down. Get out your pen and paper and here's what I want you to write. Biblically, that's not how it came about. The Holy Spirit so guided the writers of each book that he used their own individual styles and personalities so that what they wrote is exactly what God wanted written. He so filled them with his Holy Spirit for a divine, a specific divine purpose that using their own writing style and their own personality, they wrote down as they were as God breathed out, and what they ended up writing out was exactly what God wanted written. That's divine inspiration. So we can say, for example, let's take a classic example. Luke is a physician. He used a a sophisticated Greek. He used a higher level of Greek when he wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And you can see Luke's style and Luke's personality coming through in his writings versus Mark. Mark was a much more simple man. He used a much more simple form of Greek. He was writing the gospel of Mark to the Romans. And it was a much simpler message. And you can see in the gospel of Mark, Mark's own personality and Mark's own writing style coming through the gospel of Mark. However... 
Every single word, every jot and tittle Jesus said is exactly what God wanted written. It is exactly. Folks, I want to tell you from Genesis to Revelation, in the original manuscripts, in the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, every comma, every little word is exactly, exactly what God wanted written. In our English translations that we use today, the accurate English translations are so close, are so close that we can with great confidence say we are reading the very words of God and have confidence in those words. So let me bring this all together this morning and this evening by saying, if we are going to stand against the errors of false teaching, if we are going to influence our culture, an increasingly secular and even hostile culture, we must commit ourselves to knowing and obeying the totality of the Bible, the totality of Scripture. Folks, we must commit ourselves again and again to the preaching, teaching, and obedience of the Word of God, the inspired, inerrant, infallible, fully authoritative Word of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to be students of the Word. Help us to be disciples of the Word, committed to living it out. Oh, Lord, I pray tonight that you would impress deep upon the hearts of every person here that every word, every word from Genesis to the end of Revelation is your word. It is your inspired, breathed-out word. May we approach it with fear and trembling. May we approach it with great awe desiring to take it in as much as we possibly can and to obey it in every way we can during the time we have here on earth. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.